welcome to the London Aesthetics Forum. This is a session um, supported generously by the British Society of Aesthetics. Today it's a pleasure to have uh, Professor Mike Martin uh, with us. He's professor in the uh, UCL philosophy department and his uh, talk today is entitled Sounds and Images. Thanks for Okay, so um, just to kick off, on the handout you have a photograph of Florence Nightingale, taken in 1858. So you can stare at that. And now I'm going to make some noise. Okay, yes, I'm sure you could all listen to me. That was Florence Nightingale, a recording. Actually, I've given you the details of the, the other. She did, it, she did two takes. This is the second take, but the timing I've given you is for the first take. And so that was recorded on a wax cylinder of the 30th of July, 1890. It's one of the first commercially available recordings. It was released as part of a charity drive for the survivors of the Battle of Balaclava. And what you could just about make out was, when I am no longer even a memory, just a name, I hope my voice may perpetuate the great work of my life. God bless my dear old comrades of Balaclava and bring them safe to shore. Florence Nightingale. Okay, so six years ago, the Welcome Institute made available on its website, and you can go into the library and listen to it if you want, um, a transcoding of that wax cylinder. And so the observation I want to start with, which I won't, uh, I grandly label observation just to indicate that not for one second will you get an argument in its favour. <laughs> I'll just stonewall you. Is that I think that one can hear sounds reproduced through mechanical or electromechanical reproduction. In the Florence Nightingale case, that was initially the use of a wax cylinder. A few years later, you might have had acetates, and then polyvinyl chloride 78s, or 33s, or 45s, a tape, uh, electromagnetic tape, or a compact disc, or a digital audio tape. You wrote this originally a few years ago. Now we just know it's MP3s, if you're a little bit uh, nerdy like me, you might use Ogvorbis, or you use some form of AAC, though you might know it as uh, MP4 or MPA files. So there are various ways of recording and then encoding sounds, and I think that when we play a recording, what we hear are the sounds that were originally recorded. So I think that we all, well, almost all of us, uh, some of you weren't in the room at the time, heard Florence Nightingale's voice. Well, 
the nature of voices is slightly complicated, so let's just focus just on the sounds that she made in 1890. I think when I played that recording, you heard the sounds that she made. I'm not claiming that you heard her, or that you heard the event of her speaking. That would be a further issue, come back to it. I would be inclined to deny that. Nonetheless, you heard the sounds that she made. Now, I think, and obviously the children of Ken Walton will disagree with this, that when you look at the photograph of Florence Nightingale, what you see there is you see an image of Florence Nightingale. You can see the appearance that she had in 1858. Sorry, it would of course be much neater to have used one of the photographs taken over in 1890. Um, but thinking ahead, um, one can get the license for images taken of her in 1858, and one cannot get licenses for images that they're taken in 1890. So you'll just have to accept the claim that the uh, 32 years difference makes no difference to the issues that we're engaged with here. Uh, okay, so when you see the photograph, you can see what appearance she had in 1858, but I think you can't see her. Okay, so I think this introduces an interesting contrast between the visual realm and the auditory realm with respect to reproduction, as well as an important intersection between the two. What I want to claim is, when you listen to the recording, you hear Florence Nightingale's voice, you hear the sounds she made on that occasion. You don't hear her, you don't hear the event of her speaking or making the sounds, you do not hear an auditory image. Okay, so sometimes uh, sound engineers will talk about sound images, particularly in relation to um, speaker setups or headphones, how good a sound image they have. That would be a different notion of image, and we can come back to it. In the sense of image that I'm interested in, there's no such thing as an auditory image. So there's not that to be perceived. When you see the photograph of Florence Nightingale, you don't see her, so there was an object that was present on the occasion of original recording, which you're not now able to perceive through encountering the reproduction. But you do see the photograph, and you see the image, the photographic image that the print in front of you on the page presents to you. And I think there's no other individual which you would have seen at the time of taking the photograph which you can now see in looking at the photograph. Okay, so photographic reproduction isn't a way of bringing back individuals for you to have a perceptual encounter with, in the way I was suggesting that auditory reproduction does allow for re-encounter with some of the individuals that were present on that occasion. Now, sorry, as I've already indicated, and I won't go uh, into the details of why uh, it's just obvious that one should disagree. Ken Walton famously said, and some philosophers follow him, that what's distinctive of photographs is that you see the things photographed when you look at a photograph. So a photograph is a way of extending your seeing. And I think, as Walton is well aware, uh, this is uh, a counterintuitive, somewhat provocative claim, and Walton makes no good argument for it. And although most of the arguments in the literature against him are abysmal, that doesn't put him in the right. So we should just, for the sake of argument, just accept what I take as in fact an obvious truth. And I can't give a better argument for it than its obviousness to you. Well, I can give an argument for it, but I won't go into that. That you don't see Florence Nightingale. 
Okay, so if that's right, and if the initial dogmatic observation made about sounds was right, then there's this, this interesting contrast between the two cases, which it would be nice to have some explanation of. Maybe not a full explanation of. Um, but also I'll just say one, one thing that's interesting, I think, in, in common. Um, I think auditory reproduction and photographic reproduction are both interesting to us in that they give us connection to particular entities, events, objects, and other such things as sounds through reproduction, which otherwise would be irretrievable in our past. So these kind of ha can have an affective status for us that other kinds of um, historical documents don't. So it's interesting that in both cases there's a way, there's a preservation of particularity, as we might say, even though the preservation in the two cases is going to be different. But what I principally want to focus on today is to ask, well, whence the difference? And I want to suggest that there's something about the structure of the senses and the sense worlds which make for the possibility of what you get in the photographic case and rule out that possibility in the auditory case. But despite that, given the commonality that reproduction in both cases is linking you back to something that was in the original occasion, which is being reproduced, I think this also tells us something about the nature of sounds. So I'll move back and forth, uh, contrasting the two cases, making some claims about the nature of depiction, and then making some contrasting case, uh, claims about the nature of sound. Finished tying us up for the day. Okay, so the fundamental hypothesis I want to put forward is that we understand, we should understand this contrast between auditory and visual reproduction by reference to variation among the senses. Now, I think typically when, so two kinds of things happen in philosophical discussion of the senses. First, philosophers almost uniformly focus on vision. Second, when they become reflective about it, they complain that philosophers almost uniformly focus on vision, and then they talk about vision again. Often they say, well, this is how it is in vision, so this is how it must be for this given sense modality. So philosophers, and I guess another aspect of that, even if it's not particularly focused on uh, peculiarities of vision, is that Philosophers tend to assume that if we're talking about the nature of the senses, then we should be able to give some general principles, which will then hold in different ways for the different senses. So there should be, uh, we should be able to give general criteria for how we distinguish among the senses. And that kind of background uniformity is common in discussions of sense perception. And its appropriateness or inappropriateness rarely becomes salient because it's rare for philosophers to contrast the senses in any detail in their discussions. Okay, but where, where I want to start is actually a kind of O'Shaughnessy's rejection, Brian O'Shaughnessy's rejection of consciousness in the world, of an assumed uniformity which many philosophers appeal to back to Aristotle. So there's this famous passage in Aristotle's De Anima, when he introduces the idea of the special sensibles or special objects of sense. And he says, I call special object whatever cannot be perceived by another sense about which it is impossible to be deceived. 
e.g. sight has colour, hearing sound and taste flavour, while touch has many varieties of objects. But at any rate, each judges about these and is not deceived as to the fact that there is colour or sound, but rather as to what or where the coloured thing is, or as to what or where the object which sounds is. Okay, so, at least there, even though he's kind of admitting that touch is slightly more complicated, Aristotle is suggesting that there's a general pattern for the senses, that you find its sensible object, which is proper to that sense, and that's what marks out that sense from all of the other senses, and this will hold for each of the senses. Now, as Sean has seen, his discussion of visual appearances, or indeed appearance in general, because he thinks appearances, strictly speaking, only belong with vision, he says, two properties both possessed by sight are, I think, responsible. The first is that when in sight, the attention lands upon a colour, it lands thereby in addition upon its material object bearer. The second is that it lands upon the material object in and through, or in virtue of, landing upon its colour or brightness value. Sight differs in the first respect from smell, taste and hearing, and differs in the second respect from touch. Okay, so, rather than thinking of all of the senses as having a special object kind of generic object which is the object for that mode of sensing, and that holds for all of the sense modalities. There's an important way in which sight and touch, and touch won't concern us here, it's just sight, are importantly different from the other senses. Okay, so touch is going to turn out not to have a special object at all. Okay, so however you're to think of texture, texture is not giving the special sensible object of, this, of the faculty of touch. But sight, in a way that I'll say a little bit more about in a moment, is more interesting yet again. Okay? Because although um, there's something right about Aristotle's special object for sight, which is light or light-related qualities, it's not true that that's the primary or sole object of sight. Okay? In sight, you encounter material objects as well as mere light objects. Okay? So, you can't pick out the special object of sight, which is always what's given to you in seeing, and then ask how it's related to locations or other objects, in a way that you might think that you could do for olfaction or flavour or hearing. Okay, now, next point I want to make again that gets some of the, the contrast, kind of messy contrast, is I think in olfaction and gustation and their intersection, flavour, if that's a distinctive sense modality, because you know various people in this room have strong views about olfaction. Um, I think that we think that there's something inherently general about the primary objects of awareness there. So that we think of smells or tastes as kind of stuffs, or even kinds of stuff, so that we think on any given occasion of sensing, what you're sensing is a portion of the relevant stuff in question. And given that a portion of the stuff may be associated with a specific particular object that you encounter through smelling, but the stuff itself is something that we think of inherently qualitatively or generally. So to think that, you know, Chanel number five, you might think, has a distinctive smell, distinctive odour associated with it, one that will cost you a large amount of money. Now, if you foolishly buy a liquid from a barrow boy on Oxford Street because it costs a mere tenth of what it would cost you in Debenhams, 
and unfortunately it brings you up in a rash, that in itself is not a ground to say it has a distinct smell. If it smell is just qualitatively identical with respect to how your olfactory system is responding, then I think how we think of it is that it has the same smell, even if that smell is produced by a different chemical substance. So, for the objects of olfaction and gustation, I think we get identity of indiscernibles for that. And generally we think of those as sparks. And I think audition, on the whole, contrasts with olfaction and gustation in that way. So when I say, in my southern English way, water, as opposed to water, often creates a problem when you're thirsty in some parts of the world and you ask for water, no idea of what you're talking about. So when I say water, and again I say water, there are two sounds that I have made. Okay, that because I'm, take it, fairly reliable in the um, vocables that I produce, they're type identical. The sounds are type identical, but there were two distinct sounds that I made. Okay, so we think of sounds as individuals that get produced on given occasions for making the sounds, and so we allow for the idea that there may be qualitatively indiscernible sounds that are nonetheless numerically distinct. We put sounds on the sides of particulars in the way that we don't put smells and tastes. So, I think one can sense things other than sounds or smells through olfaction and audition. So, you can be half asleep on the tube and in this kind of muggy late May weather, suddenly be aware of the person sitting next to you through the smell that you can take in. Uh, I think human beings are, are much worse at locating objects, events and locations with which smells are associated than other creatures. So, you know, there are various variable capacities about this, but human beings to some extent can perceive sources of smell through perceiving smells. And notoriously, we hear sounds categorized by the kinds of events that produce them. Okay, so the, the kind of classifications that we have for sounds connects them with the kinds of physical uh, events which are liable to produce sounds of that, that sort. And that's the kind of one of the big hypotheses that Al Bregman's uh, lab in Canada for the last 40 years has been working on. That there's kind of scene passing that you do in audition. And so we also, we, we don't only categorize the sounds, but we can hear objects and events as the sources of those sounds. It's a slightly more delicate question whether the the perceiving of an object as the source of the sound could be purely auditory, or whether it's fed into by other sources of sensory information, and that I don't want to get into today. I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. So the idea that you can hear an object as the source of a sound is one of the things that clearly motivates Barclay in the dialogues when he's trying to soften you up for the contrast between what he thinks of as the objects of sense, which are going to turn out to be ideas, and what they suggest 
which may be something which goes beyond the senses. So he gives you the famous example of, for instance, when I hear a coach drive along the streets, immediately I perceive only the sound, but from the experience I've had such that the sound is connected with the coach, I'm said to hear the coach. Nevertheless, evident that in truth and strictness, nothing can be heard but sound, and the coach is not thereby, not then properly perceived by sense, but suggested from experience. Well, I mean, I guess I think we should hold back from two claims that Barclay makes in that passage. I think it's wrong to say that we don't hear the sources of sound, and I think it's wrong, just a matter of psychology, to suggest that the sources of sounds only come in through suggestion and learning, which is what Barclay's suggesting. But, so, so those may be mistaken, but the contrast that Barclay's interested in within our auditory experience between sounds and their sources, I think, is, is one that, that people find uh, very easy to accept. Now, in relation to all of the sense verbs, we have nominals which generate from the sense verbs, which we're happy, to some degree or, or other, to treat the entities that those nominals pick out as the entities which are the objects of so sensing. So, um, uh, when, sorry, it's rather than the sense verbs, it's better to say the appearance verbs. So, something can sound a certain way, and we have the entity sounds. Something can smell a certain way, and we have smells. Something can sound a certain, sorry, so it sounds a certain Sounds. Something can taste a certain way, there are tastes. And things can look a certain way, so things have looks. But, I think, when you think about it, looks stand on a different status from sounds or smells. Okay, but the, the Barclay quote is suggesting that in the case of audition, if you want to ask, what can be the primary focus of your attention, the answer will be a sound. Okay, so the parallel would then be, in the case of vision, what would be the primary object of attention, primary object of awareness, that it would have to be a look. Now, I think that there are theories of vision which work on that assumption. So I think there are, most notoriously, in some sense data theories of vision, for example, Frank Jackson's account in Perception, a representative theory, and some of what Moore was inclined to say in the first part of the 20th century, one way of understanding their views is to suppose that vision presents sensible objects, color patches, which stand to visual experience, as many of us think that sounds stand to audition, or smells to olfaction. And in that way, one might think that the visual world was primarily given to us as a display of color mosaic, and that we could pay attention to something beyond the color mosaic only so through some further intellectual or cognitive effort, so that there would be the job of associating the color mosaic with something in the material world beyond it. I think that's how someone, certainly more at some points, and sometimes Jackson, that's how they talk about visual experience. Now, I think that gets something fundamentally wrong about how our experience seems to us to be. Maybe that view is in the end the correct view, but how on earth they would establish it, I don't know. So maybe there's something deeply misleading about our experience, but I think as our visual experience ordinarily strikes us, 
among the visible objects, there are some objects which you might think of as mere visibilia. So you can see light, you can see shadows, you can see highlights, you can see rainbows, you can see holograms. I mean, some holograms which look as if they're holograms. And in all of those cases, what you um, see, you treat, of, you, you treat as just being an aspect of the visual world. It's just a way that the visual world can be arranged. But I think alongside the mere visibilia, you also see things which you see as, you immediately categorize as, material or solid. Just in the sense that there's more to their nature than just what is given purely visually. So I guess, because I mean, I don't want to count clouds as among the material side of things, but you might think cloud is a paradigm for you of something that's not solid. Okay, so in the sense in which I mean to include solid, I mean to include clouds in solidity. So its nature goes beyond what is just a dimension of variation in, in visual similarity. Okay, now, I think in that way, the, the difference between being a mere visible and being a material object is something which is manifest to us in visual experience. So it makes a difference to what the scene strikes us as being, whether we see it as containing solid objects or merely light objects. Okay, now, notice that this isn't the same. Sometimes when philosophers have been inclined to try and mark out a category of kind of the the most fundamental or basic ways for any given sense modality in which things can be the same or different, they sometimes introduce the idea of the observational, either observational concepts or observational properties. So, I mean, one such example is Chris Peacock in various of his writings. So originally in a study of, in sense and content, and then in the thoughts, and then in the study of concepts, and then in realm of reason, he's given subtle variations on the same principles which are supposed to define the notion of observational concepts. Where for observational concepts it's supposed to be a priori that you can only have gone wrong in your sensuous judgment if you're in some way misperceiving. Where misperceiving here means that your perceptual system is not functioning as minimally it would be required to do. Um, Whereas for other properties that you can learn of through vision, you, you could be misled by your senses without your senses malfunctioning. So that's his category of the observational. It ties the, sorry, it ties the notion of the observational to how it can provide for knowledge, at least when things are operating correctly. Now, I, I think there is a core to the notion of the observational there, though I, I don't think one should have find it quite in Peacock's way, which suggests that when we're talking about the look of objects, the looks they have, then there are some properties of objects which necessarily coincide with the look associated with that property. And I'm not going to go into details today, but I want to suggest that there are seeming counterexamples, but I don't think they're counterexamples, that, for instance, three-dimensional shapes, such as being a cube, the property of being a cube and the property of having the look of a cube are necessarily coinstantiated. Okay, so you can't pull those two apart. 
Okay, and that kind of idea, the look having to go with the property, in both ways, that whenever you've got the look, when you, whether you really do have the look, you've got the property, and whenever you've got the property, and it's perceptible, then you have the look. That necessary coincidence, that gets you the idea of the observational. Now, when I've been talking about solidity as an aspect of the visual world for us, I think it, it, to say it's an aspect of the visual world is to say it is a dimension on which scenes are visually similar or different from each other. Okay, two scenes will strike us as visually different if one contains something that we see as solid and the other doesn't, even if in their other properties they're the same. Okay, but solidity isn't going to be observational in the way that I've just described. It's not going to be the case that whenever you've got something which is solid, it looks solid, and whenever you've got something which looks solid, it is solid. Okay, so uh, for the first, with a cunning use of lighting and glass, I can have a perfectly solid glass rainbow look just like an ordinary rainbow. Okay, so, and you know, you can get into all kinds of accidents by failing to recognize glass staircases for what they are, thinking of just a shadow image. Um, and conversely, if you waste your time going to Switzerland, you will find there's the H.R. Geiger Museum in which every different possible formulation of the alien monster is on, uh, is on show. But they don't actually have, well, they have one or two. Most of the aliens on show are not actual statues, um, they're holograms. Okay, so you see the holograms, but, and they're kind of green laser holograms. They're not very nice ones. Um, but the holograms in question are ones that look solid. Okay, so if you didn't know about the, the ways of creating these holograms, you might think that Geiger had a fetish for luminescent green plastic and just made all of his models out of green plastic. Okay, so holograms which, we, which are just a certain kind of visual phenomenon in certain circumstances can look to be solid even when they're not. Okay, so visual solidity is not something which only solid objects can possess. Okay, so to say it's a dimension of visual similarities, then not to say that you can't be mistaken about it, so clearly you can be here. It's rather a further contrast that we have with the observational. Okay, with the observational, I take it, what we think is that, for instance, if you take, we're, we're happy to talk about something like the look of a tomato. And obviously there are lots of different ways that tomatoes look, but there are at least a, an interesting families of ways of looking that we categorize together as looks of tomato that you'll think about if you start talking about tomatoes and the look of tomatoes. And it seems to us quite conceivable not only that non-tomatoes should have that look. I mean, you might think anything grown in Holland is an example of precisely that. You don't buy that fruit in the supermarket. Um, but it seems to us quite conceivable that there could be, that look could have been associated for some people just with another kind of thing entirely. So that you could have come to know what is in fact the look of tomatoes by just hanging out with schmatos, which share the look with tomatoes, such that you would mistake a tomato for a schmato. Okay, so there's nothing about the, although the look of tomato is for us a way of making 
manifest that there's a, a tomato, a certain kind of fruit or, or salad vegetable, whatever you want to call it, on the plate in front of you. So it's quite conceivable that that way of looking could be something that which would make manifest to someone the presence of an entirely different kind of thing. So I think the minimal idea of thinking that solidity is something which is somehow given to us visually along with the observational properties is that idea that that way of looking which we associate with solidity is one which essentially is tied to solidity for us. Even if you lived in, an, in a universe which just contained mere visibilia, if some of those phenomena looked the way that solid objects look, then that world would involve the misleading presence of seeming solid objects and not just visibilia. Okay, so this way of looking is tied to being solid, even if in fact nothing around us is solid. That, that's, that's the content of the distinctive claim of supposing that being solid is an aspect of how the visual world is given to us. So I want to say that is an aspect of the visual world for us. And that's what shows that a kind of sense, that's one of the ways that shows that a sense datum way of thinking about the visible world really misses something that is distinctive of visual experience and contrasts with the other sense modalities. Now, so, so given that, what all that we have in common across the visual objects, as if some of them are solid and some are not, is just that they have a certain gen generic thing which we might call their visual appearance, how they look. And that's not a primary object of awareness. Okay, so in the case of audition, when objects sound some way, there's a sound which they produce, which we can attend to. But what I've just been pressing is that we shouldn't think that when we see an object and it looks some way to us, that there's some look that it produces that somehow we're aware of. Rather, in the case of vision, when we talk of the looks of things, in fact, that's a kind of indirect aspect of the object. It's picking out some way in which it's visually similar or different from other objects. Now, it's that special status, the visual appearance, I'm now going to suggest which introduces the possibility for a distinctive kind of representation that you have in the visual realm that you couldn't be having in the auditory realm. So that's what's going to explain, I'll suggest, the possibility that there should be images which you could see, as in the case of a photograph, which you couldn't have in the case of audition. Okay, now... Um, what I want to try and tie down here, in a way which is slightly stipulative, in, in terms of the, the labels that people normally use, but which I think does track a genuine phenomenon, is that if we talk just generally about representation, then there's clearly a sense in which any entity in the world can be used as a representation of something else. So that clearly there are ways in which sounds can be representational. And there's clearly an interest in discussing different um, forms.
forms of music, for example, different ways in which a piece of music may be held to be representational or not, and whether in being representational that's a vice or a virtue of a piece of music. You might think that there are ways of, say, uh, representing the chirp of, chirping of birds which is just incredibly plodding in a piece of music. So it would be a potential object of criticism that it's too, too naively representational. So it's not that that I have in mind when I'm suggesting that auditory reproduction does not involve an image or does not involve representation. So what I'm trying to tie down is a suggestion that there's a certain kind of natural representation or natural imagery which can be present in the case of photography and by reference to which we can understand what's distinctive of depiction in the visual realm, for which there'll be no analogue in the case of audition. So I just want to try and tease out that idea a bit more. I won't, won't fully tie it down for you, I think. So I think that many photographs, though it's questionable whether they all do, exemplify a form of natural representation. Okay, now there are artifacts, as indeed all pictures are, but I think in central cases of photographs, the creator of the photograph makes the photographic image through utilizing a natural image of an object. So the creator's intentions or expectations do not directly determine the objective depiction. Okay, and so there's a common thought here that a painting need not be the depiction of any actual individual to be a depiction. Okay, so uh, to use Goodman's old ideas, you know, something can be a unicorn image without being the image of any particular unicorn. Okay, but there's no photographs of objects which are not photographs of particular individuals or particular events which were occurring at the time in which the image was captured. And I think, importantly, natural representation shouldn't be understood as natural meaning. So I think you kind of get some, uh, a common kind of dialectic in much of the discussion here is you have one class of theorists who want to emphasize the way in which all modes of representation are in some way conventional or culturally bound. And so this is going to have to be true of, uh, of visual depiction, no less than language, and to try and emphasize how there are various rules for the production of things. And those who want to hold on to the idea that there's some distinctive representational mode to photographs which don't carry over to the linguistic case often initially appeal to something like the idea of natural meaning, or they may sometimes say indexical meaning, to try and show that this is kind of naturalistically okay. But I think it's important to see that natural representation contrasts with natural meaning. Okay, natural meaning, there I have in mind just Grice's idea, what he contrasted with non-natural meaning in his famous essay, Meaning, when he was trying to explain what was distinctive of, of meaning something or saying something. The idea of natural meaning was really the idea that one thing naturally meant something else. If it wouldn't have been the way it is, 
if that other thing wasn't that way. So one way in which you exemplify natural meaning is if you think you set up a system in which you copy something, you make a perfect copy of an object. So um, some of you have photocopies of page three and four. So, so a third of you of page three and four have originals of this that came off my laser printer. Okay? There was no earlier instance of pages three and four than the ones that came off the printer. So they're originals. Whereas others of you, unless, well no, I didn't give Emily the electronic copy, so she took that original and she put it in the photocopier and lo and behold, high quality photocopiers instead of house these days, you have a perfect copy of pages three and four. Aha, okay, so, and so the, the copy that you have it's being the particular ways that it is. So, for instance, having the page number in bold on the bottom left-hand side, that reliably indicates the way that the original from which it was copied. Okay, so we've used a mechanism where we have a community of properties between originals and the copies, however many copies that we've made of that. Wherever you have that copying relation, then you have a natural meaning relation which carries between each member of the sequence. Um, and it carries in an asymmetric way. So each of the later members means something about indefinitely many of the earlier members. And though you can infer the other way too, uh, as things are normally set up, uh, it's not assumed that any of the earlier members naturally mean anything about the later members. Okay, but so in that case, in the, the copying sequence there, no member of the sequence, there's no reason to think any member of the sequence is privileged in respect of any later member meaning. So each of the later members um, mean that each of the earlier copies are a certain way that are in a chain of copying. There's none that's privileged. But let's suggest that how we think of photographic prints and images is really not like that. So if I've got around to it. Finishing my slides, a very nice photograph of Monica Vitti from La Ventura. Um, the original photograph taken by Antonioni uh, 50 years ago. Who's to say where that photograph is? There are multiple copies of that original image that are around, and many of the images we now have are copies of copies. Each of those copies is a copy of the original photograph. Okay, and the original photograph we take as, as somehow being privileged in this condition, but the original photograph isn't a copy of the original scene. It's not that you suddenly get a Monica Vitti on the cheap by getting hold of the original print or even the original negative that Antonioni made. So, We've got each of these photographic prints being just a natural representation of Monica Vitti and nothing else in the sequence. But each naturally means all of the earlier members. So as is familiar in naturalistic uh, attempts to naturalize or reduce meaning, there's a problem of trying to find out why one of the members of the sequence is privileged in this way of the copying. And more particularly, why it's just the first member in the sequence of reproduction that's privileged. 
Okay, so um, when you raise this in the context of discussing two-dimensional photographs and three-dimensional scenes, it's liable to kind of seem in some way obvious, but unfortunately it turns out not to be transparent, why there's a key difference here. Because, of course, everything that gets copied is going to be a two-dimensional image, but what was originally captured was a three-dimensional scene. So I think particularly when one looks at experience resemblance theories, I think there's um, a tendency to suppose that it's a shift between the three-dimensional and the two-dimensional, which is making for a difference here. And that, I think, is a mistake. So to try and see that it's a mistake, let's move to the case of three-dimensional copies. Okay, so I want to suggest that there are three-dimensional visual images for which the same issue arises, but which clearly a shift between three dimensions and two dimensions is not, not salient. So let's think of a, a suitably serious example. So there's such a thing as Kylie Doll. Indeed, if you go on the web, you can see the adventures of Kylie Doll as she visits all of her friends around the world. And Kylie Doll is, let's pretend, made from an injection mold that was formed from the original Kylie, that Kylie gracefully spent the afternoon having a maquette made up in her perfect form, and from that the injection mold was created. So each Kylie doll is a sculptural representation of Kylie Minogue, which, as we're telling the story, so kind of causally traces back to the little Australian. It's small enough that even if you make a life-size doll, it's still the one that can fit in your pocket. Okay, now, what I want to suggest, and again, I don't, I'm not going to give you an interesting argument for this, is that the way that we think of all of these dolls is that they're not natural representations. Okay, they, they causally all trace back to Kylie's uh, encounter with the, the mold-making machine. So there's a kind of reliable co-variation between the features of each of the Kylie dolls and the features that Kylie had on that day. But we think of them as Kylie dolls, not because of that causal relation, but because, you know, that's how they're marketed and sold. So they're artifacts with the purpose of being a stand-in doll for Kylie. The point that, you know, if it had turned out that on the day Kylie was too busy and Danny, her sister, had to stand in, then they'd still have been Kylie dolls, even though Danny was the original model for the, the cats. So I don't think that we think, even when they're mechanically produced, that we think sculptures are intrinsic representations of what the sculptures are. Okay? They can have all kinds of associations and effective resonance because of how they're produced. And I guess, I mean, that's how we might think of death masks. You might think a death mask, which is, you know, uh, has exactly the copying status here, um, has a particular connotation. Perhaps the first death mask as opposed to further copies might be something that you would fetishize. But I don't think that we think of the death mask as such is a representation in the way I would suggest that photographs Okay, now, I think contrast how I'm suggesting we should think of Kylie doll with, and this is where I really, maybe I can show you, show you the film anyway. Okay, so this is going to be argument from um, George Lucas. 
Okay, well that's enough that you haven't paid for it. Paid for the film, so we won't carry on with that. Okay, of course that's now been uh, re-imaged in 3D, though I don't think it's been shown yet. So I don't know how that scene works when it's actually shown in 3D. But at least it was originally shown in 1977. The fiction is that you see the presentation of Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia as a holographic depiction of her. You see it as an image of her, and you see it as being three-dimensional. You see it as having a three-dimensional character to which uh, equivalent to all of the elements around her, since you're seeing it all in three-dimension with limited depth. Um, uh, that's fictionally given. No doubt in the new 3D presentation they'll make a stand in front of your nose or something. Um, so, in that case, what I suggest is when you see the Princess Leia hologram, you see it as an image. Okay. It doesn't look to you as if um, there's R2-D2 solid, and then there's a little sort of Princess Leia doll of the sort that you could have gone and bought in the shops for an outrageous price produced by Hasbro with removable buns or whatever. Next to it, it looks like it's, in some sense, a light projection of Leia. I want to say that's a case in which we just see something as an image in three dimensions, in contrast to how we might see a sculpture. Okay, so when we see a sculpture, what I want to suggest, we see it as something that may be being used as an image. It may have the artifactual purpose of an image, but there's nothing about its solid form which requires that we take it be an image. And that, I suggest, is not how we react to the light show. Suppose that's right, whence the difference between holograms and statues? Well, what I want to suggest is this, that holograms like rainbows and, and shadows are visibilia. Okay, so they occupy the visible world, but they're not there by material. So we accept that there are aspects of the visual world which are purely visual phenomena and others which go beyond it. Um, but some, now some holograms, such as in the Geiger Museum, are mere visibilia, but they have the visual appearance of a solid object. Okay, and those, and you can later inspect I'll leave one for later inspection. Front here. You need to be in the right viewing angle to see it. But yeah, you get a, a virtual image of a pink pig, which looks solid, but, but which isn't. So we have some. Um, 
Some holograms appear to be material, even when they're not, and you might think that that's a kind of visual illusion. The Princess Leia hologram, on the other hand, I think, looks to us to be just a light object. It looks to be what it is, a hologram. Okay, so it doesn't look to be solid. So there isn't an illusion about it. But nonetheless, that hologram does present to us the visual appearance of something which is solid. So it presents to us the recognizable self. It presents to us the recognizable features of a solid object without itself seeming to be solid. Okay, so it's presenting but not exemplifying the appearance of a solid object. Okay, so since there's in some sense the presence of the appearance of a solid object, because you can recognize the various features of Princess Leia, even while recognizing that there isn't a solid object to be exemplified, those surface forms and the like. Then you have the question, which object is it whose appearance is so presented? Okay, and that allows for the idea that there's some particular object whose appearance is thereby being presented to you, which is distinct from the object that you can actually see. Let's contrast that with the Kylie doll. Okay, the, the basic visible properties of the Kylie doll, obviously there are, there are various things. She's sort of mold-injected plastic, so she isn't really wearing a velour tracksuit top. That's kind of molded into her, but it can give the appearance of velour tracksuit top. But at the same time, it does so through exemplifying certain surface colors and textures, which are actually exemplified by the mannequin. Okay, so there's an appearance which the mannequin has in virtue of which it may seem to present other appearances, which it actually exemplifies. What I want to suggest is in the case of um, the Princess Leia hologram, it's presenting the form of a solid object, a kind of distinguished by various surfaces that it has that discreetly um, shape some region of space, without itself seeming to be solid in that way and genuinely have those surfaces. So there's an appearance that's present which isn't exemplified. Precisely because that appearance isn't exemplified, that can raise the question, whose appearance is it that's being so exemplified? And so I think that that gives us, if you like, the, the kind of formal phenomenological feature of representation, presence in absence. There's an appearance present, but it's not exemplified. And so it can raise for you the question, which absent entity is this the appearance of? And that's the way, I want to suggest, that entities such as holograms, which appear to be mere light objects, thereby appear to be images. So you can see it as an image, because you can see it as something involving the absence of the object which would exemplify the appearance which is presented to us. And I won't go into uh, details of, the, of it because I've been going on uh, well too long. 
Um, but that thought, that what's the key to depiction, is that we see something as an image through seeing it as presenting that which we also see is not exemplified, is the hallmark of visual depiction in general. And whereas I think that that is distinctively present in the case of photographs, which is, after all, an early 19th century technology, that's the key to the visual classification of things as visual depictions. So mere hand-drawn depictions we see as if they were photographs. Photographs are a mechanical way of capturing natural depictions. Okay, so that gives us that in the case of the visual realm, we have the possibility of natural images. We have the possibility of natural images because the visual world itself contains alongside uh, material objects and mere visibilia, both of which have appearances. And so allows for the possibility that there are mere visibilia which can convey the appearance of solid objects without appearing to exemplify that appearance. And that allows for the possibility of there being images in that way. There's no parallel to that in the auditory case. So auditory reproduction could not give you images in that sense of images. So auditory reproduction is only in what you can yourself hear is only going to connect you back to the original occasion of recording if there's something particular that was present in the recording, in, on the occasion of recording, which is now present again in what you can hear. And I think that's how we think of sounds. We think of sounds as entities which were originally produced by some event, but which can be captured in recording and reproduced. So, an individual, an individual sound, the sound, the sequence of sounds that Florence Nightingale made on the 30th of July 1890, can only be experienced now if one can hear the very sound again. That's what I've said. But if we, so the sound must be available in the new perceptual act when you hear the recording. It's not going to be good enough to have some mere surrogate because if audition doesn't allow for the possibility of images, there's no way that the sound could come in again in the way that it can through an image. Okay, so if we concluded that sounds themselves are heard again when you hear a reproduction, then that suggests that sounds can exist at times other than their original production. Assuming that Things exist within some temporal envelope when you perceive them. And if that's the case, then it means that sounds can exist at multiple locations at the same time, since we can all, we can all go in the privacy of our own rooms and use the internet for that thing that we always use the internet for, this going to the Welcome Library and playing its recordings. So we're all listening to Florence Nightingale at the same time. Then in everyone's room, there's the sound that Florence Nightingale made on the 30th of July in 1890. That sound is now closely enough located to each of you that you can now hear it in your own room. So it looks as if the sounds are going to be multiply located and they can... The sound was originally made on the 30th of July 1890, but 
no instance of that sound was around to be heard for many, many years between 1890 and 2006. Okay, there was the wax cylinder in someone's private collection which they wouldn't dare use in any way because they didn't want it to decay. So you might have, it may have been, I don't know, 60 or 70 years that sound was not reproduced at all. There was the possibility of reproducing it by using the wax cylinder, but no one dared to do it until they set up to record it. Okay, so sounds would have a discontinuous existence as well. So they don't fit a certain paradigm picture of what particulars should be like. So a picture of particulars as certain kind of medium-sized, dry goods, concrete individuals is supposed to have a continuous and unique route through space and time. Okay, and sounds wouldn't have that. Rather, that suggests on this picture that we should think of sounds as abstract individuals in Strawson's terms. That they, um, qualitative identity is consistent with numerical distinctness in this case, so that's why it's, it's an individual, and yet it doesn't have to trace the continuous parts. It's not like a concrete particular. So, and so that suggests that sounds have individuation conditions that are a bit like some vehicles of representation, for instance, words on Kaplan's account, some representations themselves, photographic images, and some art objects like symphonies. And if we grant this, that sounds can be produced in this way, then I think that also requires that in, a, in an event of reproducing a sound, then since the event of reproducing the sound can have auditory properties that the initial sound lacked, you might want to suggest that there are two sounds you hear in the reproduction of the sound. There's the sound that's made in the reproducing that may have all kind of scratchy noises to it, and there's the sound that's reproduced, which isn't itself altered by the reproduction. Um, and I guess two last, one last question I want to leave with you, and then I'll, I'll close it there. Sorry, I've been going on. So, there's a question, can you perceive a sound without hearing any event of producing or reproducing? Okay, so, as I've set it up, um, I think that there's a common thought, which I've always found very compelling, the idea that one of the distinctive things about perception is that sense perception puts you in touch with the here and now. So there's got to be something particular or indexical that's present in all perceptual experience. So, and you know, in the visual and, and tactual case, you might think that that's given by there being concrete individuals that somehow you're in perceptual contact with, that you're seeing or you're bumping up against. And that's what's focusing you in the here and now. But in the case of audition, we said, well, look, how you should actually think of sounds. Sounds are particular individuals, but they can also be reproduced. So, sounds, are sounds concrete enough to meet the sense of being in the here and now? Well, one way of pressing that is, obviously we can write a recipe for producing a sound without actually having produced the sound. You, know, you can sit down at your synthesizer and do a version of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star without actually playing it on any of the speakers. And you could sort of feed that to your CD burner so that there was a CD 
was recording was made of this awful rendition of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, which you could then torture all your nephews with as a Christmas present. So their playing of the CD would then be the, the first occasion of making those sounds. Well, likewise, your recording, we might imagine, suppose we've got someone whose um, ears just aren't working very well, but the auditory nerves and the auditory uh, receptor system is working just fine. So we try and plug directly into that without having any acoustical cause for it, suitable stimulation which comes from your recipe. So that you know, the first thing they've heard in many years is your rendition of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Okay, so now do we want to say that in that case they hear some particular sound that's made from that recipe, as indeed your nephews would when they played the CD, without them having heard any production of sound. It does that make sense? That's a question. I want to leave it. I'm not going to give. But what I want to, I guess, how we might compare it with is: look, could you perceive an image without seeing any print of that image? So normally. The way that we see photographic images if, is we realize them in some way in some medium. And so you take in the image in that way. But suppose you've got someone who really can't see, but you can reliably stimulate their visual cortex in a way that would make them respond as they would to seeing the image. Would that be a way of taking in the image? Okay, so we might think that the normal vehicle for taking in images is through concrete embodiments of them. But that would be inessential. Okay, now images aren't the fundamental things in the, the visible world. The visible world involves both visibilia and concrete objects. But in the auditory case, if sounds themselves are abstract particulars, then you might think that you could have the hearing of sounds without having to hear any events of producing them. Uh, um, so maybe that's a worry about pushing sounds as abstract individuals. So I just wanted to raise that at the end. But just to close off, okay, so I started with this observation. We could hear the sound that Florence Nightingale made on the 30th of July, 1890. Even now when we, we play it from the welcome MP3 file. We can only see an image of Florence Nightingale and not Florence Nightingale herself. I've suggested that that contrast we understand in terms of broader contrasts among the objects of sense across the different senses. So in the case of vision, the possibility of seeing the image and the image presenting the object turns into a contrast in the objects of vision, that vision presents us both material objects and mere visibilia. And the contrast between mere visibilia and visual and, and concrete objects, is itself visually given, so things can appear solid to us. That then allows for the possibility of mere visibility, which present the appearance of a solid object without themselves seeming to be solid, and so no illusion in that. And that would give the possibility of visual images. So that's why vision allows for a category of natural image which isn't available in the other sense of the By contrast, 
in the audition case, just as in envision what's so enticing you might think, at least within your own family, about sort of Polaroid snaps and, and family snaps is the way it connects you back to particular incidents in the past. Auditory reproduction can do the same. It doesn't do it through presenting images because the auditory world doesn't have the resources that the visual world has to do that. So if auditory re reproduction essentially links you back to past events, it does through literally reproducing the sounds that were present on those earlier occasions. And so we should think of sounds not as events or properties or the other favoured reductive categories that philosophers have been suggesting. Sounds are what they are and nothing else. But what that is is a distinctive kind of particular, abstract individuals that allow multiple occasions of existence. And I'll leave it there.